We want to welcome everyone to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell coming to you live from Ad Color 2021. I'm here now with a guest who just got off the stage, and I'm going to pass it to him to let him explain who he is and what he does. Tunde, take it away. Thank you so much, sir. Hello, everyone. My name is Tunde Ajaba Ogundepe, second-generation Nigerian-American, music tech executive, entrepreneur, podcast Does host, it all. Has his hands and everything. Uh, <laughs> nonprofit found, like, there's a, a litany of things, but no, I'm grateful to be here, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I definitely want to get into ad color and some of the things that you've got going on. You just named a list, but let's start here. <laughs> let's go back. You mentioned Nigeria. Where uh-huh. were you born, raised? Give us a little sense of your family background and upbringing. Sure thing. So funny enough, I was born and raised in Connecticut, and there's a story behind that as well. My grandfather was a professor mm. and taught a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Connecticut was one of the places he taught. Family was like, oh, we're going to establish a base here. So I grew up in Connecticut, but I spent a lot of like summers and family vacations in Nigeria. So a lot of people who know me know that I'm really big on African culture, especially mm-hmm. Yoruba culture where my family's from in Nigeria. And that's a result of that. It's a result of my upbringing with my grandparents who would come back and forth from Nigeria to Connecticut and make sure that we you know, knew how to speak the language and cook the food and mm-hmm. knew the music and, and the history and, and all that stuff. So a lot of that has been embedded in my output gotcha. since, since, since childhood. It seems like education, obviously, culture, where your family's from, but also, let's call it book education, important in the upbringing. Absolutely. Not just that, but even like the idea of code switching, right? I Mm. know that it's not often discussed, but code switching is definitely something that I had to learn early on because it's one thing to be Black American, Mm. right? Mm. And and to live that experience in, in a predominantly white environment like Connecticut, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And to grow up in that environment and and traverse those experiences. But then when you add in the African element to that, Mm. in some spaces, you are too Black American for the African experience. And in some spaces, you're too African for the Black American experience. Wow. Right? Yeah. And all of that to say, on either side, you're too Black for the white experience Mm. to some, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So having to navigate all of those different vantage points, Mm -hmm. I guess you'll say, to kind of converge into one yeah. as I developed in my childhood was was interesting. Did you know going through that experience that is what was going on or that was something looking back on as you got older, you're like, huh, this was my real experience as a child? Absolutely. I mean, when you're unlearned, yeah. when you're uninitiated, when you're ignorant to certain terms, you're not learned into what things mean, what mm. words mean. Of course, we, I felt things but I didn't know how to articulate them as, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. Gotcha. Yeah. I didn't know I was code switching every time I had to engage with elderly family members and I would change my accent so they would hear me mm. clearer, mm. right? Mm. Still speaking English, mm-hmm. but changing my tone, changing some of the grammar, some of the uh, elements of my speech so that they would be able to converse with me easier. And then switching back when I go to school and engage with my professors or my peers so that they could hear me clearly as a Black American or just as an American mm-hmm. speaking American English, right? And then when I would, you know, meet with my friends and we would have our own slang and our own vernacular that we would use, right? So the idea of of having to to wear multiple hats, depending on what room I'm in, is something that I've carried with me for a very long time. And I think it's actually helped because now as an adult, mm-hmm. when I'm having conversations with certain executives, you know, they hear me speak and the first thing they go, you speak so well. And I used to get offended by that because mm-hmm. obviously if you're a Black person and you your speech is considered good, 
like you speak right, well. Right, right, right. So and the idea is that there are black people that don't speak to the level of of white acceptance. Mm-hmm. Like you don't sound learned or you don't sound like you're educated or whatever it is. And and I used to take offense to it, but I can't change who I am. Right. Like I was fortunate enough to go to schools and be in environments where my speech was a result of that. Mm-hmm. The way I speak English, the way I communicate with people is a result of that, right? But it's not to say that someone that grew up on the other side of the tracks or grew up in New York or grew up in Atlanta or whatever can't also communicate the same. Right. It's just who's trying to listen. Right, right. right. It's about the person giving people an opportunity to, you know, not fit into a mold that they created as acceptable Black mm-hmm. and still be able to penetrate through, mm-hmm. get ideas to penetrate through and and their impact to penetrate through. And that's the type of work that I kind of done my best to amplify. I have mm-hmm. a lot of peers that they didn't grow up in Connecticut, but they have brilliant ideas. Yeah. So if I can help put them in rooms where right. their ideas can be shared and they can benefit from being exposed to certain opportunities yeah, that yeah. they otherwise wouldn't, it's like, that's literally what I feel like I'm there for. Gotcha. Gotcha. Let's fast forward now, right? Let's talk a little bit about your career and your career journey again. <laughs> you could probably rattle off a bunch of different things right now that you're doing, but take <laughs> us a little bit on your career journey to where you're at today. All right. So I would say, I don't think I've ever shared this before, but it really starts off in church. My mother, who's now late, was really big on church. Mm. And I would say if she wasn't big on church, I probably wouldn't have ever discovered music in the manner that I did because she could sing very well. And I took a very big liking to piano when I was a kid. And the easiest way for me to learn was to go to church and take piano lessons. And after that, it was, okay, I want to learn how to play drums. I want to be like the drummer in church on Sunday, hitting all the cymbals Mm -hmm. and and getting everybody riled up. And that was really my first foray into getting into music. Mm -hmm. After that, because I was a pretty impatient kid, I was like, you know what? I can't sit here and take these lessons. Let me just teach myself. So I convinced my parents to get me a keyboard, get me a drum set, and I was making noise in my house. Eventually getting into producing music, it was just I I had a liking for instruments and understanding how Michael Jackson could be Michael Jackson. Not knowing that I actually really liked Quincy Jones, but it was Michael Jackson ah, that yeah, yeah, got yeah. me yeah. into the idea of complex instrumentation and arrangements and and production. So I was always into production, but my window into production was through the lens of seeing the artists on VH1 and yeah. pop-up video and BET and those sorts of mediums. So, Because the artist was on the front lines. Correct. I mean, that's what you were going to see at that correct. time. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And for those that know me quite well, they they know that I'm, I've always kind of been like a background guy. I don't necessarily find myself being the front of things, mm. not necessarily because I'm like afraid of it. It's just not something that I've always been about. I try to be impactful without necessarily being the center of attention. Gotcha. I try. And Who's I your favorite producer? Ever? Yeah. <sighs> that's, that's, that's a tough one. You brought up I mean, Quincy, I brought up Quincy, right? Yeah. So I think Quincy's, Quincy's top three for me. Man, producer. There's too many to name. Yeah. That's T- all good. Tim's up there. Pharrell's up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, They're up there on Jermaine Dupree's up there. Yeah. All right, well, you just named Bunch. Yeah, yeah, you know, like there's a Jay Dilla. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. up there. Yeah. Uh, Raphael Sadiq's up there. Mm-hmm. Quest Love's up there. I have a list, man. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then that's just on the on the urban side, on the pop side. Then you got like that's Max true. Martin. It's probably an unfair question for me. Stargate. To ask. <laughs> you know, it's 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 it's. And then on the African side, we got Don Jazzy. There's a few, but I've always been a fan of the idea guys, right? And so we're talking about producers, the people that actually go in the studio, press the buttons, and 
ideate everything mm-hmm. and then it comes out you hear mm-hmm. it on the radio but then we talk about executive producers like Diddy mm-hmm. who you know may not necessarily have to touch an instrument but he's the one that's like okay put this producer in this room alright take that melody from that artist and boom mm-hmm. let's take this song from the 80s and redo it mm-hmm. and boom mm-hmm. so I've always kind of hovered between that like the executive producer and the producer where yeah. it's like I like this idea now let me find the people to do it right right or I like this idea and I don't know if anybody else can do it. So let me just do it myself. Yeah. So yeah. it's like a, a hover between being like a Diddy or a Khaled mm-hmm. or being like a Jermaine Dupri, right, right. Timbaland. So you like to be a strategist, but you also like to be hands-on. Correct. Sometimes you got to do it yourself. Right. You know, <laughs> I've taken kind of a back seat over the years from the production side only because like I came in on the production side very at a very interesting time, mm-hmm. like where the internet has started to kind of take over the traditional music business was really transitioning. It was in a transitory period where the peer-to-peer and and social media and all those things, MySpace, iMeme, SoundCloud, all those things were kind of turning the traditional music industry on its head, right? So I could be on my phone and get the newest Drake record uh, in seconds versus having to wait to go to Tower Records or go to Strawberries or go to, you know, wherever it is to wait three, six months to get to, or Best Buy to get the CD, Mm -hmm. right? So I think the appetites for instant gratification Mm -hmm. is what changed a lot of things for creators and consumers alike. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of stuck in the middle of that because Mm -hmm. as much as I like to consume, you know, NERD and Daft Punk and music in general, I had access to everything through mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. I was able to, you know, hear a Frank Ocean record before his label even heard it, you know, just yeah. by being in the right community on a forum. Right. Or, you know, meeting artists on, on social media platforms and, and building relationships, bumping into them backstage somewhere or just meeting them outside in New York or mm-hmm. in L.A. Mm-hmm. And then I was connecting and them sharing me music before it hit radio. Right. So those were always things for me. I was like, OK, this is dope. And I was like, okay, what would being on the other side of this look like? Instead of being necessarily on the creator side, what if I could help artists from the business side of things, like helping them really be able to craft their digital brands and and monetize on that front mm-hmm. and and teaching artists how to really capitalize on their their digital footprints. Right, that was right. kind of how I was able to justify me stepping away from trying to produce and understanding other areas in the music business. Right, so that's right. how I had stepped away from that for a bit and then went into creating my own agency where I was helping with brand development for a few artists and and then that led me to go okay what are other areas of the business I'm not fam- I'm not as familiar with mm. so I read this book from Donald Passman how to make it in the music business which yeah. everybody's like everybody's read that book right and I was like okay cool I'm learning all these things about percentages and and PROs and publishing and etc okay so what are some other things that I don't know about touring? I didn't know anything about touring. Mm. I had been on tours yeah, with artists, yeah, yeah. but I had never understood how tours are routed, what right. agencies right. in that space look like, yeah. who is Live Nation, who is AEG. I didn't know anything about it's that. It's like so. the difference between going to a restaurant and ordering a meal versus owning a restaurant. Correct. It's just different. Exactly. <laughs> it's like being a chef versus just looking at the menu. Yeah. So I walked into WME, started in the mailroom, and mm. learned that whole business from inside out. And then when I felt like I had learned enough, then I dip back out again, do my own thing with my agency. And yeah. by the time the next opportunities arose, it was me stepping in advisory roles at various startups mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. were in the music space. It so, seemed like throughout your career journey, there's been times where you recognize an opportunity, you do the research, but you're not afraid to 
pivot in your career. You're not afraid to leave one place and go do your own thing. Or Talk to me a little bit about that. Where does that sort of lack of fear come from, right? Because for a lot of people, that could be a scary proposition mm-hmm. of like, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, but do I really want to like leave what I know now to go mm-hmm. do something? You, you get what I'm saying? I think it comes back to my upbringing. I think my mom being as religious as she was, she always led with faith. Like we yeah. pray every day. We went to church religiously. And I think it was just ingrained in me that I wasn't fortunate enough to operate from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I didn't have like bad days or bad seasons. Right. Because obviously we all do. Right. Right. But right. I, I never stayed there. Mm-hmm. I never stayed stuck there. Right. And I think that's probably the, the thing that I walked away with from my total experiences, no matter where you find yourself in life, like even if it's a bad place, don't get stuck there. Yeah. Because that's the difference. It's like when you know that, yeah, I may be experiencing a rough patch, but there's always going Mm -hmm. to be an opportunity to get past this, right? Because if my mind wasn't prepared for whatever the next thing was Mm -hmm. along the journey, there's no way that I would have been even considered for some of the things that Gotcha. That I've been considered for, yeah. right? It's not just being physically prepared, but also mentally prepared, right? Right. There's right. a lot of very talented people that are stuck in their own head. Yeah. And yeah. they they can't really move into the the thing that their destiny yeah. wants them to wants move into to, because yeah. they're not even mentally there. Yeah. Which is also why on the panel today I talked about mental health. Yeah. And let's go into that because, uh, again, catching you right after you're coming <laughs> off the stage. Tell the audience about the panel today and the topic of conversation. Yeah. So my friend Usman Sakoso him together with his co-founder, Akin Adeboa, they both created this startup called Black Tag. And Black Tag is actually incredible. I remember when I was at Spotify, I met Usman when he was at Google and he was telling me about this idea he had to really amplify Black creators. And well, the conversation was, there's a lot of creators that are not Black that benefit off of Black talent and Black art. Mm -hmm. And who's going to drive the resistance or the who's going to lead the conversation to kind of steer things in the direction where black creators are eating off of their off of their art mm-hmm. like how many trends must go viral on Instagram and, and Twitter and TikTok before somebody cares about peaches getting her just due for on fleek or for I don't remember this girl's name is it Addison Ray Madison mm-hmm. whatever those girl like they'll see a trend on black Twitter or mm-hmm. black TikTok and they'll do it and then mm-hmm. boom they end up on Good Morning America right, or right. Late the Night Today with Jimmy Kimmel or, or Jim Today Show yeah, thank yeah. you I mean we've all experienced that yeah. right we see something in a, in our micro communities and then moments later we see it being replicated with nobody that looks like us mm-hmm. and we're kind of like oh well did the person that created this a few months ago is this person he or she even they aware of what they created being right. exploited without right. their input. And I've seen some people be able to like sue and win those cases, but it's so few and far between, mm-hmm. right? So I think the intention behind Black Tag, I, I love it. It's something that I find very novel and noble of them to know that they have a team that they've assembled that really cares about the initiative of amplifying mm. and advancing Black creators and, mm-hmm. and putting them in rooms like, like how we discussed earlier. Where we see it eye, eye to eye is the opportunities being created for these Black creators that previously didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Putting them in rooms where they can have partnership conversations with the likes of PewDiePie and Ninja on Twitch. And, you know, I love that. I love that for them. And I think what they're doing is wonderful and necessary. Yeah, yeah. What excites you about sort of the the future of where Black Tag is going and in general, the the future of the creator, right? Because Mm. that's the idea behind... Black tag, right, mm-hmm. is to elevate and amplify 
black creators, right? For sure. So, so what excites you about the future of that? I think, I mean, even with the panel today, right, we just, mm-hmm. we just spoke with a handful of managers and project leaders that Usman and I have met over the years. And personally knowing their stories and the things they've had to kind of do and navigate through to get to where they are. Yeah. I think it's important that people that aren't in the industry or people that are even their peers that they may feel like their experiences are unique to see like, oh, we all went through a similar experience. Yeah. And here's how we can protect the next generation from not having to go through some of the hardships that we all went through Mm -hmm. to get to our perceived success or whatever that means. Right. Right. And I think it's important. I mean, the reason why we both ask personal questions because, I mean, we know we know them to yeah. an extent. And I know that a lot of the things that they would love to share, they don't necessarily have an opportunity to. Mm. It's not easy being a first or second generation anything right. and stepping into a business that's dominated by white Jewish people. Right. And the reality is the way the business has been structured, especially entertainment, there's a lot of shared resources around culture that are culturally motivated. and the I'm trying to be mindful of how I say this. There are certain communities that have really benefited off of that idea of sharing resources and trickle down mm-hmm. information, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that because there is a general awareness of that, specific cultures have benefited from that. Mm. Where the creators, the people that are actually creating the content that is being capitalized and commercialized mm-hmm. are left out of the conversation as mm-hmm. far as seats, seating Sit at the table, table. is concerned. Mm-hmm. So I think things are changing. Obviously, you have meccas like Atlanta, meccas like Oakland that are shifting those narratives across entertainment. Mm-hmm. But it can't just be one city. Right, right. That right. represents yeah. Black right. community that, and that, culture. That it's not a full representation if Correct. it's just one city. Correct. Right. It shouldn't just be one city because outside of that one city. Or other, by the way, other, or one state or one country. Correct. Yeah. Because the other yeah. cultures have one globe. Right. Right. You know, and they benefit off of having that international network mm-hmm. of like-minded individuals that share resources and, mm-hmm. and make sure that, oh, if you're not plugged into Bloom, I'm going to connect you with my cousin in Yugoslavia. That's a plug for that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not connected, boom, I got a cousin in Germany that's going to hook you up and make sure you're getting your fair deal. Yeah. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we know that, but it's got to start from somewhere. I yeah. think as long as we are making attempts to share that knowledge and develop infrastructure so that the next generation has it easier, we've made some sort of positive change. Yeah. And I think you just touched on it too, right? The next generation, because this isn't going to be solved overnight. No. It's I a, mean, we've had it better than anybody before us, yeah, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Black managers, Black creators, Black executives that have navigated through this non-Black dominated industry for a very long time and just hearing some of the stories of things that they've endeared. Like, I don't know many people in our generation that are built for that at all, to be quite frank. And I have a lot of respect for those who are of color, are Black, and have persevered through their experience and are watching the generation after them really benefit from being able to push through the doors that they put the key in. So I'm really grateful. I mean, I sit here as a descended of the work that they've done. Mm-hmm. I was able to look at the blueprint of a Clarence Avon or a Shaka Zulu or a Sylvia Rohn, mm-hmm. you know, and just really be grateful that they led the charge and allowed the Ethiopias and the Tunji Balagans and, you know, just other Black executives, like generationally, that have followed their footsteps and learned from their failings and learned from their their wins, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I hope that the work that we're all doing collectively in this generation inspires 
whoever comes in next. next. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I really, really appreciate you, Tunde, for joining. A couple more questions for sure, you. Sure, sure. Fun one I love asking every <laughs> guest I have on the podcast is to give me the top three apps that you use on your phone <laughs> on a regular basis. But okay. don't, don't give me calendar or email or text messaging. Those are too boring. Dang, I was gonna say I was gonna say WhatsApp because being Nigerian, yeah. being African, you know, the auntie's always gotta send you the chain. You know, I hear you, yeah. I have yeah. a cousin that uh, <laughs> is telling me that coronavirus is affecting everybody by chewing gum. And I'm like, uh, that's not true. But all right, cool. All right. So if WhatsApp is not um, I'll let you go with that one, but give me two more. Okay. Give me two more. Um black tag. All right. Oh, there right. you go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've used to, I think, um, <laughs> man. Uh, email, man, between Gmail and I have quite a few different inboxes, Outlook, Gmail, Spark. I use mm-hmm. different email apps for the different yeah. organizations that I'm a part of. But it's still all connected to communication. I think that is. communication apps, task management apps like Asana. Yeah, that's how you got to keep up with all uh, the different things uh, you got going on, man. For sure. Um <laughs> I definitely play around with a few, but not as much as I should. Gotcha. Not as much as I should. Well, again, thanks for joining me today. Anyone that's listening, if they want to continue conversation with you, how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach out to you? Great question. I think the easiest way for anyone to reach out to me is still through social media. Yeah. Like Instagram. My Instagram, my Twitter, everything is the same. They call me Tune. Okay. Yeah. T-H-E-Y-C-A-L-O-M-E-T-U-N-E. Send me a DM. I try to get through as much as possible. Literally, like... You saw me earlier. I was responding <laughs> yeah. to have requests and stuff after stepping off of stage. But yeah. no, I'm just really grateful, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I hope that anything that I said in this helps anyone that's listening that that may or may not be from a first or second generation background that's interested in getting into the business. It definitely hasn't been easy, but it's definitely something that if you love creating or working with creators and then being a part of cultural shifting narratives, then mm-hmm. it's definitely something I advise that you tap into. Otherwise, definitely read, 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 read about the infrastructure, read about ways that you can impact infrastructure. Not everybody needs to be an artist. Right. Not everybody needs to be a music producer. Right. right. Not everybody can. Exactly. If you're great at math, be an accountant. Right. Help artists figure out their taxes. They need that. If you're great with graphic design, go to art school, go to Parsons, go to Art Institute in Chicago develop a skill set that makes you qualified to do a graphic design role yeah. at either an agency or at a label, yep. right? Yep. There's a lot of money in that. If your strength is in legal and law, go to law school, become an entertainment lawyer, help yep. people get out of terrible contracts. Help, help people great avoid signing terrible contracts Absolutely. as well too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, if you're a great task manager, you're great at managing relationships in your personal life, yeah. look into management, find an artist you really like and show them the ropes as a manager. Not everybody has to be a performer. That's where I always have these conversations with people. Like, oh, I'm interested in getting the business. Where do I start? Well, what do you like to do first? Mm-hmm. What are things that you're actually mm-hmm. good at? What are you at? passionate about? What too? are you passionate yeah. about? Because if you're doing what you love to do, what you would do for free, if you find a way to monetize that, you'll yeah. never work a day in your life. Right, right. Right? Yeah. I have so many interests, mm-hmm. but what I've realized is where I excel at is bringing people together mm-hmm. and and connecting people and educating on cultural things. Gotcha. Uh, even my role at Spotify, like what I was able to do there with the team that I worked with was we created a platform for everyone mm-hmm. to be able to understand how nuanced and and complex the African music industry is. is yeah, how yeah. complex the, Af- the genres on the African continent are. Mm-hmm. It's not just Afrobeats, mm-hmm. right? It's not mm-hmm. just Wizkid. Right. It's not right. just Burna right. Boy. It's not just Davido. You know, this Angelique Kijo has been doing this for 
decades, yeah, right? Yeah. There's African rock artists that nobody seemed to be aware of until we created a platform for people to be able to explore rock music in Zambia, rock music in South Africa, rock music in Nigeria, alternative music, R&B music. Like, I think it's important that as much as ownership is important, yeah. infrastructure is important, yep. and also who's going to tell our story Yeah, as Black people, as African people, who's going to tell our story? Because if we don't tell it, somebody else can come and tell it for us. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened with hip-hop. Right. We yeah. allowed other people to come in and tell our story, and now we're pissed that it doesn't sound the way that the purists wanted to sound. Well, sound, where yeah. were you when? Where were you when at the same was, table when, when things happening. were being developed? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I think we're at a point now where, because global music and pop music is is such an important conversation now, I think there needs to be more focus on the infrastructure mm-hmm. and what things will look like for the generation after us. It gotcha. should not be difficult for an artist from you know, Senegal or the Congo to be mm-hmm. able to put music out and monetize it and feed their family without having to go through this whole network of, of vultures of, uh, and, yeah. and nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear you. Those are my I thoughts. Yeah. No, love it, man. <laughs> love it. And again, thank you for joining me today. And and thank you also to, to our partners at Ad Color, right? Absolutely. For creating this space this week and putting on again, not only a wonderful event this week, but all the work that they do throughout the entire year. So absolutely. Yeah. Shout outs to the entire Ad Color team. I'm very grateful to be a part of everything happening this year. Thank you, Tiffany Warren. Thank yep. you, Yvonne McNair. Yep. Very grateful to everybody who considered me for the opportunity. And thank you for having me on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining me. And <laughs> for those out there listening, just remember you can find more episodes of Minority Report Podcast wherever you listen and consume your audio. Just look for the logo and we'll talk to you soon. 